My name is Claudia Green, and this is She Did That, the podcast shining a spotlight on remarkable women who are breaking barriers and proving that greatness knows no gender. From female founders who have raised millions of pounds, the investors changing the landscape as we know it, to survivors of tragedy who have achieved the amazing and many more. We will share the stories of these incredible women who will inspire and empower you. In order to support us and these women, please subscribe on your viewing or listening channel of choice so we can continue our mission of sharing the stories that should and need to be heard. She studied volcanology at the University of Cambridge. She worked for Oxford University, helping their spin out startups. She advises the government on entrepreneurship and she looks after deep tech investment at Octopus Ventures. I have a very, very exciting guest today. Please welcome Zoe Reich. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for being here. No problem at all. Um, well, I, I guess let's let's kick off. Um, there's a lot, a lot I want to delve into and ask you. You've got unbelievably interesting experience. Just for a bit of context on how you started your career and how you chose to study volcanology um, at Cambridge. So why don't you kind of talk me through what little Zoe was like? I think that's just terrifying, actually. <laughs> like, very happy talking about career stuff. But, um, so, uh, gosh, um, for me, actually, the separation between what I chose to do at university and then career is actually quite stark. Mm. Um, in the, For university, I studied something that I absolutely adored from a science point of view. Mm. Um, my parents were scuba diving instructors when I was young, so that meant traveling the world, having enormous appreciation of the natural environment. Mm. And so um, that, that is something that really stayed with me, made such a high impact in my younger years. And I studied volcanology because, I mean, who doesn't love massive mountains and fire? <laughs> and the opportunity to go and visit them and to see this in action, it was absolutely phenomenal. So in particular, I was looking at how volcanic ash and aerosols have impact on everything from jet engines through to weather in the natural environment. Mm. Um, field trips, fantastic. So anybody out there who thinks, <laughs> what can I do that's science related and you're going to go and travel to amazing places in the world, can, can highly recommend it. But, um, you know, coming out of university, having done that research, there's not a lot of careers in the UK in volcanology, which probably should have expected at the beginning almost thankfully yes indeed <laughs> there there is a long long dead one in Leicester but uh, <laughs> thankfully long dead so um I always love the interplay between science and the business world mm. and for me sort of going into finance allowed me to explore that really um, I started my career in management consulting at KPMG in order to get a solid grounding of financial principles, doing my management accounting qualifications. But as I edged towards that side, you lost the science bit, mm. which is something, you know, personally, I absolutely adore. Mm. So after that, I, I went to go and work at Oxford University, working with their spin-out companies and particular deep tech companies. Mm. Now, that really means looking at high intellectual property, uh, research coming out of the university, that you're finding this nugget of commercial potential mm. that is going to have a big impact on world challenges. And that's mm. inherently what deep tech is. So going into technology transfer allowed me to keep that, um, let's say, interplay between science and business. And that's really formed the basis of my career onwards. Wow. So does that mean that you were working with um, the University of Oxford sort of current students who had startup ideas or sort of PhD researchers and, yeah. and they were sort of hoping to spin out their, their very own company? So you were kind of there in the trenches at the beginning stages? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So less on the student side mm -hmm. because for a lot of deep tech, you need that breadth of research budget, so breadth and depth, just mm. that amount of research budget mm. that can go into this real step change technology. Mm. Because most of deep tech, it comes from this blue skies research that you inherently maybe stumble upon uh, a finding mm. that you then say, ah, right, that could be tackling climate change or food security. Mm. So therefore, we need to see how we can do that transition from academia into the commercial world creating this spin-out company that's then going to 
do that transition for impact. That must have been very interesting, kind of helping people go from pretty much concept to a working, a commercially working company. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, it's pre-concept. Mm. Really, when you're you're seeing um, this underlying research, this IP potential, mm. and then you're trying to work it into right, how could that actually form the basis of a product? Yeah. And therefore, what is your go-to-market strategy, interaction with the corporate realm mm. to do that bridge? Yeah. So I loved it, it mm. in particular because you're working with so many first-time founders Yeah. Um, in that throughout Europe, around about 85% of deep tech founders are first-time founders mm. because you have to have that intense technical knowledge for yeah. the transition. Mm. Um, it's, it's a real interesting field to play in. Are there any notable ones that sort of came out of your time there that are successful these days? Yes. I mean, one of the joys of working with Oxford and I've done the same at Imperial and on behalf of the Welsh Government is that, um, that the quality of research is amazing. Mm. I mean, in, um, in the UK, we are truly blessed mm. that four out of ten of the world's top research institutions are here. Mm. So... Uh, notable examples are the likes of Oxford Nanopore or Vaxitech that became the AstraZeneca vaccine for wow. COVID. So certainly man, many companies I've really enjoyed working from the, with. you were there pretty much from the beginning then? Well, yes, because you were working That's in amazing. that university environment. Okay, that must um, be incredible to kind of see them grow up and yeah, it have is. these huge successes and impacts on the world, more importantly. It is. And I think that growing up piece is really important mm. because when these companies first form, often what they are ultimately successful for is, is something quite different. Mm. It's very common for these companies to have one or two pivots across their journey, some many more, um, <laughs> although they probably won't talk to that extreme about them. So it's really lovely to see that evolution process. And in the case of the likes of Oxford Nanopore, um, that the founders remained the same and the leader of the company as well. Mm. And that takes quite a transition to mm. go from this very risk-adverse academic environment to thrive in a very risky commercial environment. So mm. there's a lot of mindset change and personal attribute development that's involved in that. And were there any, I mean, what, just to give sort of an idea, obviously it's sort of pre-concept or, or mm. concept stage, what are kind of the, the main challenges that you find really, really early stage, sort of concept or pre-concept stage companies run into that other people might feel they can identify with or, or in fact prepare them for when they're starting out as well? Yeah, I mean, um, we probably don't have time to go into the whole raft of them because there are a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, but one that's very common within deep tech is that you have the solution that's then looking to the prop for the problem. Mm. So as I mentioned, this comes from the blue skies research, you have this nugget of commercial potential, and you're thinking about how can I then use that to solve a problem that's out there? Mm -hmm. It's inherently different to the likes of B2B SaaS companies, which often have identified this problem in the market, mm. they'll develop their code or, or their business model accordingly. Mm. And for, for deep tech finder, founders, finding that first market application as opposed to your second or your mm. third is, is often a, a real challenge. Mm. You know, a really great example is a company in, in my portfolio that's come out of Oxford. It's called Living Optics. Mm. It's a miniaturized hyperspectral camera. Now, what that means is that they're collecting data beyond the visible light spectrum to put more data into an image for better computer vision. Mm -hmm. Now, that has applications in everything from medical imaging through to environmental sensing to taking a picture of a packet of pills and telling you which ones are counterfeit and which ones are real from that image. Mm. So knowing what is going to be a first market that's ready to give you that critical feedback on product development mm. versus your third, fourth, is really hard. Yeah, it must take quite a lot of cash as well when you're trying to develop something that's fairly groundbreaking for the world. <laughs> it definitely is cash, but it's also networks. Mm. And when you are one of these first-time founders, mm. having that access it is real challenge yeah and and actually for me that's part of a joy of working within venture capital that you do have 
a better availability of networks to try and call on for the use of the founders that you're supporting. Yeah, that makes sense. So after you worked at at University of Oxford, Hmm. what was your next role? Was that when you joined Octopus Ventures? No, there's a bit of a journey in between. Okay, talk me through the journey. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I first of all went to go and work for the Welsh Government, Mm -hmm. um, which was supporting Welsh companies, uh, Welsh deep tech companies, again looking into the university environment, Mm -hmm. saying how can we get a first institutional capital round uh, around these companies that's going to give them enough runway to hit sufficient value inflection points Mm. to to be successful. Mm. Um, I think one of the greater challenges of early stage companies is that um, availability of capital at the pre-seed stage for deep tech is quite low and quite challenging. Mm. So you want to be able to raise enough to give you enough time to focus and actually hit enough value inflection points that you're going to have something like a two and a half times uplift between your rounds. Yeah. So having somebody like the Welsh Government who is there to be patient but also to heavily support a specific ecosystem Mm. can really help with that. I think you've covered something key there. One thing that I noticed a lot of when I was researching deep tech companies is that a lot of the time you you need the cash injection to be able to fuel the research. So often when you're when you're pitching your idea to investors, it's not something that is necessarily going to be commercially viable in the short-term future. So it must be a lot more difficult to pitch that to investors when it's like a lot more of a long-term game because there's so much research involved in between. Do you find that that's something that it makes it a little bit more difficult to raise early funds? Yeah, there's quite a joke. Um, it's not exclusive to the VC community, but definitely within the VC community. <laughs> um, when you're talking to a B2B SaaS investor and they're saying that, yeah, you know, this Series A company has one million in annual recurring revenue. Mm. Like, what, what's revenue? I'm just not used to that in deep tech. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, it is a challenge. But that's why you would often go to a specialist deep tech investor mm. who is more valuing the underlying intellectual property the market traction that you've got, the novel aspect of the research, is it breakthrough? Mm. And also to have those interactions with end customers to say, right, is this something that's really needed, Mm -hmm. needed now, and are you going to pay for it? Which is ultimately what this all knuckles down to. Um, So it is a challenge, yes. You've been on the science side, you've been on the business side, commercially, you kind of seen it from all angles when it comes to starting an early stage company so let's segue into your startup that you you co-founded with your husband is that right that's right yes okay tell me a little bit about that because I always thought you must have really um got the chops for starting this your own company after nurturing all of these other founders yes yeah I mean I had um I'd spun out companies from universities acting as a bit of a proxy CEO before Mm. so putting together business plans financial models routes to market building up the management team Mm. um but it's always something different when you're doing it for yourself putting your own capital in there and Mm. you know extensive periods of time um so uh I had just finished my MBA and I had had my second child I think it was at that time and thinking right what can I do that's going to uh, be incredibly exciting but also challenge me in a way that I haven't felt previously Mm. Um, my husband was on on a break from his career in finance and hedge funds and we said right what could we do and as such, we built a cryptocurrency exchange, a market maker technology. As you do on maternity I mean, leave. As you do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot comes from it, that uh, when you have a newborn, you're up in the night a lot. Right. And yeah. that's where your crazy ideas come. And, you know, when you're up for two hours, you actually save yourself it's a good idea. <laughs> good for the currency world as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, the, the timing was right. We had the skill set to do it. Mm. Um, so this is what we did over... So it must be in a 12 to 18 month period. Mm. And it, it's not a super success of the industry. I mean, we sold out as a technology sellout to a mm. Hong Kong based financial services company. But what I learned in that 18 months was mm. just completely invaluable. Yeah. Because you, you give all this loose advice to founders, you know, about 
focus, time management, delegation. But until you've lived it yourself, it's really hard to actually give that credibly. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the bits you do advise on change drastically as a result. Well, there's a bit more emotion involved as well when it's your own baby. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think also you, you just realise a lot more of the people aspects mm. behind starting a business. You know, the stress, how lonely it actually is mm. and um, how difficult it is to find good advice that's out there. Mm. Um, when you're starting a business, so many people will tell you, no, don't do it. Or, you know, these are all of the risks. Uh, I don't think what you're doing is novel enough. Yeah. And to build that sort of personal conviction or the strength to say, right, no, I think it's good. This mm. is well planned out. I'm going to try and break down any challenges and find people that are going to buoy me up rather than yeah. just break down. Yeah. That was a massive learning. What was it like being on the other side of the table, essentially? Um, obviously, we'll, we'll move into your time at Octopus as, as an investor, but... For you, did you fundraise? Did you have to try and pitch pitch VCs for money? What kind of route did you decide to take to finance the project? Yeah, sure. So for this, no, no, we didn't. We used our own personal finances. Mm -hmm. But I have fundraised many a time before mm -hmm. um, for the companies that I've spun out of universities. Mm. And um, yeah, it's quite interesting being on both sides of the table. <laughs> you, you learn a lot. And I think when you do both sides, you, you understand greater how the two marry up. Yeah. For, for success mm. because I think when you're pitching as a founder you don't always realize the metrics or the thought process that's going behind the investor side and it's vice versa as well mm. so to have that perspective has, has been really interesting and there's a lot of I think that there are a lot of stages that you need to complete before you're in the position to stand in front of an investor and and ask for money um, which is obviously a lot of people don't see that side. They see fundraising announcements and they think, okay, great, these, these people had an idea and um, they went and they raised money. But what sort of things are involved in the steps leading up to fundraising? Gosh, it can take 12 months. It can take many, many months mm. to, to get to that point of you being ready for fundraising. And I think actually that the most important first call is is this a venture-backable business that I'm building? Mm. Um, therefore, should I go for venture capital or should I look at other routes? Mm. In that the venture capital model is based off that power law that really your returns are going to be from one or two companies in your portfolio that mm. are going to be so outsized. So when you're thinking about your portfolio diversification as a venture investor, you want to back companies that are going to try extreme growth rates mm. that are going to be looking for you know, a hold period of yourself of around about five to seven years is mm -hmm. pretty standard. Mm -hmm. And that's not going to fit a vast majority of companies that are coming out of the UK or European ecosystem. Mm. So that's probably your first step. Yeah. But then it's going through the process of um, business planning or building out your team, financial modeling, routes to market, all of those aspects that your venture investor is going to um, dive into in a lot more detail. Mm. But I think it's also important to say that that's the bit that the venture investors look, like, look at, but obviously that's all the critical steps for building a successful business. So yeah. Let's talk a bit about what you're currently doing. So yeah. you look after deep tech at Octopus Ventures. What does that look like? What kind of companies do you work with? What, what constitutes as deep tech? <laughs> yeah, gosh, this is why I just love my job. <laughs> um, so I look after our early stage deep tech investments at mm -hmm. Octopus Ventures. And for me, deep tech is that real frontier, high IP, but most of all, step change technology mm -hmm. that is going to give a real paradigm shift in approach to tackling global challenges that are out there. Mm. It's the, the big bang versus the incremental improvement. Yeah. So that's why I still work so much with university ecosystems, mm. as well as corporate venturing, um, research groups. That, that's sort of the bread and butter of our sourcing. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of the type of companies, if we talk about the sort of technological layer, 
that's everything from photonics and electronics companies to advanced materials, mm-hmm. robotics, novel algorithm, and on the biotech side, we also look at agtech. Okay, so it's quite quite a broad spectrum of, yeah. of, of different industries all yeah. under that one umbrella. It is, it is. And I think how we, we think about our investments is that we say, what are the significant challenges out there? Mm. Therefore, uh, what is ripe for change, but mm. also where is the money going to go into in terms of adoption and making sure you've got that readiness for adoption mm-hmm. as well. And therefore, then looking at the types of technologies that can really be disruptive in that space. Mm. And then you start to look at the unique nature of the technology. How frontier is it? Mm. Is it a team that can really accelerate this route to market? Mm. And that's how we think about portfolio build-up. Okay, interesting. So what are you, I mean, obviously, there are words, keywords being thrown around like AI. <laughs> it's all becoming very, very big now. Machine learning, AI. What is, how do you see sort of the evolvement of AI over the last couple of years and versus how you see it evolving over the next five to 10 years? Yeah, so AI is just a massive grouping. Mm. It's a little bit similar to saying retail startups or something like that. Um, So you dive into the different levels of what is AI. Mm. Um, So that's where you'll hear terms such as machine learning or actually now when people talk about AI, they might mean very specifically large language models, which Mm. is this chat GPT that that people talk about an awful lot. Um, So to say what's happening in the field of AI, um, that's quite, that's a broad topic, but that's very meaty in itself. Mm. Um, There are some really interesting areas at the moment that's particularly around um, bias Mm. in AI with regards to training data. Um, You might have seen these videos where uh, you ask uh, your your algorithm, show me a picture of what beauty looks like. And it will often be, you know, a super skinny woman that's got big blue eyes. And those are biases that are inherently within a lot of the training data that we see. Yeah. So there's some really interesting developments around how to remove those, but also regulation that's coming up accordingly. Mm. Um, so that's an area that I focus on in particular. So that must be actually really useful when it comes to hiring, um, when you're trying to hire a a diverse team and and be inclusive. Yeah. Things like that must be really, really useful in helping people with unconscious bias and and actually using technology to try and remove remove that bias. Absolutely. So you see it in terms of um, some of the software that's used at the very beginning of a hiring process. Um, how can you use AI in order to help the screening of CVs or candidates uh, to try and remove some of the unconscious bias that a human might have? Mm. Um, obviously, a lot of studies that are out there that if you had a Western-sounding name versus, uh, I don't know, an African-sounding name, were you considered more qualified for the job? And this can be a particular use case for a number of those sort of um, uh, bias removal companies. Mm-hmm. So you've clearly achieved a huge amount in you know a pretty competitive space um in 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 all areas really whether it be working for a one of the top universities in the world to one of the top investors in the world what kind of do you feel set you apart from others because it's obviously not easy (laughs) to get these kind of roles I, I love that you say I've achieved a lot and my, my, my daughter really wishes I was an astronaut, um, not only an astronaut, but an astronaut beautician. An astronaut um, beautician? Yeah, I mean, jobs for the future. I actually think but that could be a thing. Who knows? I wouldn't say like my uh, job profile has been massively mapped out, um, mm. but I absolutely love what I do and mm. that gives you a particular drive mm. in order to achieve it in a bigger and better fashion. In terms of sort of what does it take to be successful, I mean, that's going to be incredibly individual to each person. Mm. But I do think you have to have a bigger vision of what you want to achieve and then a very singular mindset about how you're going to go and achieve it. Mm. And actually, for me personally, being a a competitive sports person when I was younger, I did um, national level powerlifting. Um, The funny thing is, when I was very younger, I wanted to be a jockey. 
which um, is very funny, A, if I stand up and you, you see my build, but also I was in over the um, 90 kilogram weight category of powerlifting, so I don't think a jockey oh was ever in my, <laughs> in my future. But, um, you know, having that singular vision and saying that I don't only want to do this, but I want to do this at a level that hasn't yet been seen. Mm. And the creative mindset to go and say, right, with the resources I have, mm. what's going to allow me to do that? Yeah. Um, that's definitely been a huge driving factor in what I do. It's, it sounds like you are very driven by your passion. And, and that's yeah. kind of what's helped propel you into these roles, you know, not accidentally, but, you know, you've just followed what you love. I absolutely am, but I would say I found that at a slightly later stage in life. Mm. I, I always massively appreciated the people who knew that they wanted to be a medic really young because yeah. that gave them like a huge um, target that mm. they could uh, go and try and achieve. And that didn't really come for me until I work, went into the working environment. Mm. But now it's just such a fundamental belief of mine that deep tech is this amazing enabling technology that mm. is going to viably tackle things like climate change food security mm. i mean if we look to try and hit that 1.5 degree target rollout of existing technologies is just not going to get us there mm. so that's where the the real benefit of deep tech comes and that is my guiding star really so let's uh, let's move into female representation within deep tech because I've been I've been doing quite a bit of research the last week or so on this, um, and it's not that positive. <laughs> <laughs> you say that very nicely. It's atrocious. It's a car crash. <laughs> um, it's <laughs> there's not it's just not there. I mean, there are obviously a few yeah. a few key figures, and 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 that's really inspirational. But I mean, obviously, you can talk to me about percentages and and kind of how you see it from your side being someone who is is on the other side of the table watching people trying to fundraise so you can kind of see the the numbers who's coming in through the top of the funnel and who's successfully fundraising but what is this lack of female representation in deep tech like are there not enough females doing deep tech or interested in deep tech where's the gap yeah, I mean, you're going to see it from the two sides. You're going to see it, one, from the origination side, and then one is what is actually getting funded. Mm. Um, because largely, the mark of success is can you achieve enough funding in order to be able to hit your other milestones and keep going and then ultimately be this you know, highly successful company. Mm. So maybe let's first start on the origination side. Mm. Um, across some deep tech areas, you do have a relatively good percentage of female academics, postdocs, PhD students mm. that are creating this pool that could ultimately become um, you know, top of the funnel for venture investment. Mm. So if you look into uh, the biotech scene, a little bit more on the AI actually, there is you know, a fairly good number in universities of women that are coming through. Mm. But look to something like advanced materials or quantum science, that's where it is very low, mm. down to really around about 13% is where we've seen in some of these fields. Wow, that's very low. Yes, yeah, so you just don't have an amazing top of the funnel volume mm. um, that's there. But from the funding side, uh, there's also heavy critique in that, um, that the number of women in venture teams or in particular that senior management within venture is still incredibly low. Mm. And in turn, if you go and look at where their funding comes from on the LP base, mm. uh, that's very low as well. Mm. So you don't necessarily have the representation um, that might flow through in terms of the diversity of thought mm. and backing a wider range of diverse founders so it's a, a two-ended problem mm. um, but one that is actively being tried to to be tackled at the moment thankfully yeah finally and yeah <laughs> slow, slowly but surely so are you seeing specifically at fundraising stage mm. are there sort of a, a decent number of females that are actually trying to fundraise within the deep tech space and maybe aren't necessarily successful is there a essentially is there a problem here at the stage of investment and when that where that money is being deployed is it being deployed to less females basically 
Yeah, and the, the challenge is, is that we're seeing that from a sort of pre-seed seed stage, mm. which automatically reduces the funnel that ultimately goes for a Series A, Series B investment as well. Mm. So if we are going to solve the problem from a funding point of view, it has to be at that top of the funnel level, at mm. pre-seed seed stage. Mm. And one of the things that we're doing at Octopus Ventures is saying that what are some of the reasons why we're not seeing as many female founders as we want? Mm. Yes, we've already talked about the sourcing pool and there are less women in deep tech, but, you know, there's, there's still a good amount. So how can we better support their entrepreneurship journey? Really, if you look at reports such as the, the Rose Review, it highlights three key areas that often might stop women going on the entrepreneurial journey. Mm-hmm. Um, that can be access to networks, mm-hmm. it can be access to training and access to capital. So something that we've launched is called the Springboard Program, which is there in order to tackle all those three. Mm. So we will give access to networks in terms of mentors, in terms of doing end corporate introductions. Mm. In our last cohort, we made over 180 end corporate introductions to try and get you that first customer and get you that market traction, the Mm. proof points that are then needed to be more successful on the fundraising side, for Mm. example. Uh, this is why some mechanisms are coming through, but you know, as a whole industry, we need to be a lot more creative about how we support women better, mm. um, but also just put our money where our mouth is as well. What Are there any sort of key changes that you can see from, from where you sit that could be made to, to help you know, fund more female-founded deep tech companies? Because you, you, you talked a lot about sort of where the money originally comes from and yeah. who the investors are and what are the changes? Obviously, it's not the easiest question to answer because it's probably quite no. a lot to wade through. But are there any key things that you can see that need to, to fundamentally change to help support? I mean, this goes back to our bias discussion from earlier um, in that people inherently want to back things that they feel comfortable with. Mm. And often, if there is the representation at the IC level of women, of people from a more diverse set of backgrounds, you inherently feel more comfortable backing that type Mm. of founder or type of founder set that's Mm. coming through. Um, So I fundamentally do think that we need to have more women, but also let's not just focus on women, more people from diverse Mm. backgrounds, diversity of thought um, at the IC level. Mm. And Actually, the, the LPs, so those limited partners who invest in venture capital funds, mm. that is increasingly being part of their due diligence process. Mm. But it probably needs to be at an increased level from what it is, mm. because what's really going to force change in this industry, it's going to be capital, i.e., um, does that flow through or not, mm-hmm. um, and then success. And there's a lot of statistics out there that's saying if you back diverse teams, diversity of thought, of skill set, mm. then inherently they are more likely to be successful. Even if you just look at sort of the, the VC landscape, if you look at, say, 10 years ago versus now, mm. the proportion of female investors is, well, next, next to none, let's say. 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. yeah <laughs> none. Whereas now you're sort of seeing more and more women emerge in that space, which makes absolute sense. Um, You you know, I don't know why it was such a male-dominated industry, a bit of a boys' club, the VC world. I think, I mean, there's there's very good reasons why, in that it's quite difficult to come into venture capital at a senior level if you don't have some significant experience at the board level, Mm. at an operator level, financing level. Um, so inherently you had a large number of people that came from private equity, banking, mm. where it is also very male dominated. Mm. So that flowed through in terms of the senior management of venture capital funds. Mm. And uh, yes, we're seeing a lot more women in the industry, which mm. is, is great, is amazing. Mm. Um, but what we need to see is that transition into the senior management and the decision makers. Mm. There are a lot more women that are coming into the venture capital industry, but mm. the challenge is, is that that's not necessarily translating through into the decision makers at the moment, mm. which is often at the IC level or probably more pertinent is at the partner level. Yeah. 
um, because only at the partner level are you really going to force significant change in terms mm. of the, the structure of the industry. Mm. And that there are many reasons for that. And a lot of funds actively trying to champion their, their women in order to come through into the senior management positions. Mm. And something I think has helped drastically or certainly helped me um, there are probably not so many positive things about COVID, but uh, an increased flexible working ha- has been absolutely essential. Mm. Um, you know, as a working mum, I have to be home for, for bath times at some yeah. you know. So, um, so that's been really transformational. But we mm. still need to see that greater p- progression mm. um, and also just women staying in the industry for longer. So essentially what we need to be seeing more of are females at at that sort of managing partner level or in fact I have noticed recently that there are a few female founded VC funds which is really really exciting very exciting I mean VC funds such as Pink Salt Ventures are really good examples Mm. Um, there are a growing number but also of um, I think what's particularly exciting is when you have operators that go into venture capital yeah. Um, so people such as Sarah Drinkwater from Common Magic, mm. who um, closed their fund or her fund um, a couple of months back. Mm. So her background is from Google community building. Mm. And that's something that she's taken through into her fund and mm. um, being able to really resonate and, and help founders build their, their own world around what they're doing. And do you think um, founders are kind of noticing a positive impact of having females sit on their boards versus... I'm, I'm not saying that males aren't fabulous at sitting on boards, but I'm saying is, you know, there, there's a lot that women can offer as well as men. Are there any sort of... Do you think that's being noticed? Is it being noticed? Um, so it depends what you mean by the board rep- representation. I think in terms... It's very common for um, venture capital... Uh, funds in order to take a board seat to manage their investments yes and because we still don't have that sort of seniority of a lot of women Mm. then that's often taken by by male positions um but then in terms of uh non-executive directors Mm. are coming in from outside i mean that diversity of thought is what it really Mm. goes down to and experience and differing networks so say the evidence is it very strong, very clear out there mm. for diverse management teams mm. and their path to success. So, hundred yeah. um, percent. But would we like to see more of it? Absolutely. I think I think it's it's important what you mentioned there. It's not just the fact that there was a lack of presence of females in the industry. There was a lack of diversity as as a whole. Yes. And 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 I think that's obviously a huge has been a huge problem in the past as well. Um, whether, whether it's people of colour or different backgrounds or they, they come from different countries and they want to get into the sort of investment world here. It has historically been white males in their 30s from from, from England, Oxbridge usually. Um, but it's about injecting that wider diversity as well as females. Absolutely, absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt. The next thing I wanted to ask you is... For anyone that is listening or watching um, who kind of are at idea stage or pre-idea stage, but they're kind of feeling a little bit overwhelmed, how do I get from A to B? Um, and, and what does it really look like raising money from a VC? What am I? And, and that can be anything from what kind of a deck should I have? How prepared do I need to be to walk into that meeting? Are there any sort of tips that you can give to very early founders who are kind of just trying to make that jump over into raising some some money? Yeah, absolutely. So some of it's going to come from a founding side and some of it's going to come from a a company development side. Mm. Um, You know, so having having been through this process process myself on the company development side, Mm. particularly in deep tech, I think one area that we don't see explored to the extent that it needs to be is the customer discovery process. Mm -hmm. Um, So making sure that the route that you're deciding to take in terms of interaction with industry, first routes to market, is what is optimal for you as a company versus a what is slightly easier? Where are my networks at mm. the moment? Yeah. And trying to make sure that you're really going down that demand-led pathway mm. versus something that is probably going to get you to productization stage, mm. but actually 
taking the step onto scaling from there is going to be a little bit more difficult if you haven't got that customer discovery piece done very early. Mm. So spending a significant chunk of your time to making sure, yeah, that is as tight as it could possibly be mm. is, is very, very important. Mm. And then on the funding side, I mean, preparation is always key. Yeah. Um, something that definitely resonates with me having to go out and raise funds for, for Octopus Ventures as well mm. is that you are not going to be able to sell somebody a product that they don't want to buy. Um, so in terms of going and pitching to a venture capital fund, if they're not looking for a, I don't know, say you're a photonics hardware company, if they're not looking in your space or feel comfortable investing in that, mm. your chances of being able to sell to them are, are very slim. Mm. So making sure that what you are selling meets the mandate and the thesis will probably cut down your um, efforts or the num- number of companies that you reach out to by about 50 to 60%. Mm. And then I think one of the most impactful things that I learned or courses that I went on was actually a, a sales course. Mm. Um, and that's ultimately what trying to get money from a venture capital fund is. Mm. Can you persuade them that yours is the company that they should allocate if it was their remaining two million too? Like, why does it have to be you? Mm. And that goes to trying to create as many touch points as you can with that venture capital fund, you know, Mm. from partner level down to the analyst that is probably going to be doing the majority of the work. Um, really making sure that you're selling the benefits of your technology rather than the individual features. Because if you can show that you can persuade them, then they're going to have greater conviction that you can do that in the wider industry as well. So it sounds like there are a lot of there are a lot of moving parts, and commercial viability is obviously a, a really important part of that, which is maybe more difficult when you when you're a scientist and you're really passionate about what you're developing and doing to change the world. But then you also have to put your commercial hat on and think right in in sort of real terms how can we turn a profit how can we make revenue why would a vc want to invest in me because you know it's not just because i'm helping the world let you know let's be honest it also has to have you know show promise of a financial return in some way um do you think that maybe that's also been a problem um for highly academic founders who are you know very passionate about what they do but maybe not haven't really fine-tuned their commercial viability model yeah definitely definitely I Mm. mean it's it's a big ask to go from an academic environment into a commercial environment and to get very comfortable not only with financial planning but Mm. being able to enact that on a somewhat accelerated trajectory Mm. Um, so it, it is a large challenge and ways that you can overcome it are you know mentors or team hiring around that it's very common for initial small teams of three to have somebody who is a cto type Mm. character um somebody who is a ceo type character so ie has that corporate connections Mm. now knowledge Mm. and then maybe do somebody on the um sort of product side as well Mm -hmm. starting to think about how can we translate from the minimum viable product into something that could be scaled Mm -hmm. and then going through technology validation accordingly Mm -hmm. so it it is a big challenge in terms of that commercial knowledge Mm -hmm. but I think also there's a challenge on ambition really Mm -hmm. in that we don't have a huge number of deep tech companies in Europe to look up to and say yes they have been truly successful Mm -hmm. And it goes to a fact that we often celebrate companies that have had, say, their 500 million pounds sellout, which, you know, it's good. You're, you're not going to turn that down. But mm. actually, is that what we should really be celebrating as success? It's probably not when you look to some of the U.S. counterparts in terms of the, the scale of their businesses, mm. actually looking to build for global footprint rather than just a productization sellout at series b which is often what we see in in europe Mm. so uh having a founder that says right i want to be the bigger than what is deemed big in europe Mm. and i probably want to achieve that in an accelerated time frame that's not yet be seen in the european ecosystem Mm. 
And that's what we're interested in backing as a venture capitalist. And another interesting question I was going to ask you is, we were talking about sort of female representation within deep tech and, you know, the the small proportion of, of deep tech founders. How do you see that translate throughout the venture capital race stages? So like, if you're typically doing, I mean, seed and series A, for yeah. example, how many of those are then converting into series B, C, D? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's an inherent drop-off in terms of portfolio management. Mm. So as you go from a, your seed portfolio through to your series A and series B, um, across a venture fund, it's quite common to expect that around about 50% of your portfolio will fail. Mm-hmm. Um, and what those drop-offs look like, it varies according to the different cliffs of, of stage, mm. but it could be, you know, 15 to 20% toward the, you know, mm. each one. So inherently, you're always narrowing your pool. Mm. And that, I don't think there's any data out there to say that's, you know, more likely to be at an earlier stage for women or mm. anything like that. Mm. Um, but if you start off with a smaller pool, you're going to end with an even smaller pool. Mm. Um, so that's why for me it's really important to tackle this at the pre-seed seed stage, the top of the funnel. And I guess that's why these sort of spin-outs are so important because it offers um, a bit more nurture and and support in terms of getting something from idea into a concept, roughly into a working model. Do you think there needs to be sort of more of, of, of that sort of help and nurture? Yeah, now that's a great question um, and one that's very topical at the moment because there are various reviews on university spin-out supports. Mm. Um, there are organisations called technology transfer offices mm-hmm. that are often subsidiaries of universities and are there to try and help this transition from academia, from research into mm. a spin-out company. Mm. And the, the critique of those is, is quite broad at the mm. moment. Everything from founding equity to licensing to length of time that it takes to to come out. Mm. Um, But rather than, I guess, hurling critique over the fence, actually, I think what we need to do is better fund these Mm. uh, support ecosystems Mm. um, so that they can act more effectively, more efficiently with either a greater number of people there Mm. or highly skilled personnel who have had that experience in industry in Mm. academia so I absolutely think Mm. that these support systems need to be bolstered further um, but not through critique um, but through appropriate funding and support yeah that makes sense I mean from from a hiring level from my side um, I often hire sort of graduate level PhD level students into sort of entry positions yeah Um, And it's really recently, you know, sort of the last couple of years, really opened my eyes to, and and I know this isn't isn't the best thing to say, but I was surprised by how many females there were within sort of the scientific deep tech space who are phenomenally intelligent and are studying extremely complicated subject matters at PhD level. And then sort of, where are they going from there? And I think, you know, a lot of them are taking sort of entry-level, normal entry-level positions at companies. Maybe like you, they've gone down a different route where they've joined a management consultancy, for example, because that sort of seemed like a clear route to them. It's sort of harder to define a career path. Um, And I often, when I speak to a lot of these women, I think, wow, you've, you kind of, blown me away with your knowledge and what you've achieved academically and I think is there enough support out there to actually help channel those talents into tangible businesses and and more importantly impactful businesses that can actually help the world and and sort of change the face of technology that sort of support stage really from university onwards yeah, I mean, uh, that that's sort of a massive, broad question. But in terms of um, what support could be meaningful, mm. I mean, a, a challenge has been, the, say, the, the pre-seed, seed stage funding. Mm. Um, historically, in the deep tech fields, it's always been easier to go over to the US mm. to go and get seed stage funding than it has been to stay in the UK. Yeah. Um, because if you look across even the deep tech funders in Europe, 
around about 80% of the portfolio is the software. So if you have something like a deep tech hardware company, if we're talking about engineers or scientists that Mm. might, you know, migrate down that path, um, it's been very difficult to get meaningful funding here that's going to allow you to stay, Mm. A, in that profession, but B, in the UK as Mm. well. So with that, we have certainly seen a a talent drain. Mm. And... That's in part we need to recognise at all levels Mm. that for the growth of UK PLC, deep tech has to be a strategic um, investment angle. Mm. And that's everything from more prolonged policy that's going to support and encourage deep tech uh, to interaction with industry to make sure that the R&D aspects and early growth stays here through into that adoption pathway Mm. through to regulation Mm. that is fit for purpose to, you know, allow this breeding ground in the UK. Uh, It's it's all of that that needs to come together if we are going to say, look, we really want to champion this talent through into entrepreneurship and long-term entrepreneurship. Mm. Lastly, more focused on you, where do you see yourself? I know that's a very difficult question. Do you have any sort of aspirations in terms of where you'd love to end up, where you see yourself in the next 10 years? That's not a difficult question at all. I've got it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, Firmly love deep tech hardware. Um, this is an incredibly underserved industry and one that is critically important. Mm. As I said earlier, if we are serious about tackling global challenges, we have to invest long term in not only the origination, but the continued growth Mm. of deep tech hardware Mm. and create appropriate support systems on the team development, on Mm. the financing side that is going to allow that to stay in the UK and Europe. Mm. Um, So I want, let's say am, I am, uh, going to create the uh, institutional fund that's going to do that from the pre-seed and ultimately uh, would love to have something that uh, focuses on on the growth stages as well. I'm sure you will get there. Of course, of course. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here. No problem at all. It's been absolutely brilliant and inspiring and I'm sure uh, a lot of people who are listening who are kind of at that early stage or even pre- pre-idea will draw a lot of inspiration and probably a, a lot more encouragement from from what you've said today um, I know it's an ever ever evolving world the the VC landscape particularly for women but I think this is a great positive step in the right direction having someone a senior figure in the VC world as as a woman may you have your own fund one day of course thank you very much <laughs> thank you so much.